A toast to the hunters from your friends at Grain Belt. May the mornings be clear and the fresh air be crisp. May you find solace in the silence. May the stillness settle your soul. May your long shot stay true. May your heart roam free. May you find what you seek in the fields you stock. May your call to the wild be answered. And at the end of the day, may you share in the thrill of the hunt with your friends. So here's to the eight pointers and the 12 ounces. Here's to you and to your thirst for adventure. Bring Grain Belt to the outdoors with our limited edition premium hunting season pack. This season, enter to win a hunting trip for two to Brown's Hunting Lodge, wherever you can find premium 12 and 24 pack cans. For more information, visit our website at grainbelt.com forward slash hunting dash trip. Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another Minnesota Bound podcast. Your host today, Ron Shera. And I have a very special guest, as usual, every every time we have a special guest. This guy's name is Steve McComas. Now, you may or may not know who he is, um, but he writes some stories in many places, including the Outdoor News. It's a weekly outdoor newspaper. And he writes under the name of The Lake Detective. So now maybe you know who he is. Steve, welcome, well, Lake thank, Detective. Thank you, Ron. A pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Not that uh, we've chatted before. But we did a st- story about you in Minnesota Bound one time. Um, but the Lake Detective. Uh, when did you come up with that, and what what qualifies you as a Lake Detective? <laughs> well, a long time ago, 1994, there was a... There was a special edition of St. Paul Pioneer Press. By that, I mean every week they would highlight some new business. And a guy came out from the St. Paul Pioneer Press, and he goes, well, what are you doing? He goes, this is pretty interesting and everything. I gave him my card, and on that card, uh, it said, Steve McComas, Lake Investigator, and my motto was, I never sleep. And so the <laughs> next week when it came out, he said, Lake Detective. On the case. Wow. And that's how it started, I guess, and then it went from there. You All right. So my next question, what does a lake detective do, and who do you do it for? Ah, well, it's a, sometimes, I'm, sometimes I'm on my own. If I see something interesting, I'll go in and investigate it. But otherwise, uh, there's some cities, you know, in the metro area, there's a lot, a lot of these cities have lakes, mm-hmm. but they don't have quite enough lakes to have a full-time limnologist or an aquatic scientist. Okay. Is that your background, by the way? That's right, yeah. So you you have a technical background in... Yep. I started out with biology and geology, and then I thought I better get some fisheries. I got a graduate degree in fisheries, and then you know what? To be on my own and work for some other consulting companies, you needed to have an engineering degree back then. So then we got civil engineering, too. Oh, my. So, well, you're overly qualified. I, I, well, I use them all, and I have a lot of the bases covered. So back to the cities with small lakes. Yes. So, like, for example, Lakeville. They have, city of Lake. They have a lot of lakes. Some are small, some are bigger. Not quite enough lakes, though, to have a full-time limnologist on staff. So they contract out some of their lake work, some of their lake studies. So I'll do aquatic plant surveys, I'll do some fish surveys, and I'll look at water quality and look at some ideas on how to manage their water, their lakes. So these are questions uh, some city officials have about the lakes or ponds in their uh, area, and so they maybe want to know about the water quality. And, and so your job is to 
uh, be a detective and answer these questions. I actually go out and investigate. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, so it is fun. <laughs> you never know what you're going to see. Is this a year-round uh, job? Well, uh, during the summer, we're just out in the field and cranking and getting our data and just putting in file folders. You say we. Yep, I have two other people in the office. Okay. And one of them is Connor and the other one is Joe. And so we're a three-person operation. And then during the winter... What we do is we work, we write up all our reports, and all of a sudden it's it's March and the ice is about ready to go off, and we're heading to the lakes. Again. Well, that's good. I hope I I was hoping you didn't say, oh yeah, we we'll just cut a hole in the ice and we go into there, <laughs> check stuff out. Um, well, you know, uh, being a lake detective, um, lots of stuff is happening in our lakes these days, especially because of invasive species. You're well aware of that, sure. and so. That's job security for you, I'm sure. Um, Always something lurking out there. Yeah, uh, lurking. Um, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself, but uh, so I, I'll, I will get ahead of myself. Uh, for somebody who has spent as much time underwater as you and also uh, uh, with an eye, an educated eye for what you're seeing, um, what's the damnedest thing you've seen? Holy cow. Well, Could I ever? Could ever anywhere? I've never have not found that. Okay. Although we were on lakes where possible. Yeah, where a day or so later they did find some things like that. But I would say more generally it's wildlife related. Uh, everything from alligators. In Minnesota? Well, yep, they don't they don't make it over the winter. <laughs> Serious. We've been called out for an alligator sighting. In really? fact, um, on Lake Marion a few years ago we found one frozen so he had been in the lake but they don't do very good winter I think maybe i read about that they don't hibernate and sure enough it was it was a caiman but uh, a small alligator yeah but otherwise oh man over the years we've seen uh bikes and found some old found an old anchor from 1916 really? must have been on a little rowboat that oh, somebody my. dropped because i know it was that old because it was forged or at least it was forged in 1916. Wow. But it was a little neat little thing. Yeah. Oh, one time we're scuba diving up in northern Wisconsin, and they said, what is at the bottom of our lakes? I said, well, I'll go down and check. And so I dove down. I'm down about 50 feet. All of a sudden, it's pitch black. I have a little light in front of me. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, there must be a three-foot diameter pine tree at 50 feet deep. Really? I'm going, well, this lake is 10,000 years old. That, that thing couldn't grow here. And I finally got up. I took some pictures and uh, went back. To, and the homeowner said, oh, yes, yeah, right. About 50 years ago, there was a big log jam on this lake. They were booming out logs across this lake and had a big log jam. And one jammed right down into the bottom. And it went up about 30 feet. Wow. However, the lake's 50 feet deep. So nobody ever really ran into it. But that was a surprise. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I uh, you, obviously you have a you're, you're a scuba dev. You're, you're a qualified scuba. I, I I got qualified for scuba years ago because uh, I was uh, doing it as a, somebody interested in fish and what sure. they were doing. Yes, right. Um, but I remember uh, doing an initial dive up at Crosby and the iron mine pits. They were pretty clear. And God, it must have been a three-foot. Northern Pike kind of swimming along. So I go, go swimming with him, you know. And I kind of, he was real close to shore, and I kind of pushed him in a little closer <laughs> to shore and tried to reach out. And then he finally goes, he's had enough of me. Uh, but he, didn't, he, he accepted me there for some reason. Yep. 
because you weren't a threat. There aren't many. There aren't many things in a lake that will take on a big, you know, two or three foot northern. I, I, I know. And then, so then he finally turned and he swam, went right underneath me and left. I go, Ron, what the hell were you thinking anyway? <laughs> that thing's full of teeth. Yeah. <laughs> you could you could grab your hand and and take off part of your flesh there. So. <laughs> I have a northern pike scar, Do and you, you know what? And their burst speed is unbelievable. They'll yes. be sitting there, and all of a sudden, a little flick of the tail, whoosh. In fact, you know that's how they got. How'd their you get name? the scar? From a muskie. Really? And uh, I was. It, it, it all, attacked you. Well, we were electrical fishing. Oh. And we got this big old muskie, and I said, "Oh, I got to get a picture." And so uh, the boy, they were fumbling around with the camera, and the thing had been stunned from you know electrical fishing, and just as he came to. And they were taking the picture, thing grabbed onto my finger, and I pulled my finger back. Of and those teeth are razor sharp. And they're, and they're slanted backwards. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they're recurved. So and finish your story about the northern pike. Well, that's how the, the, the way they got their name is they're, they're a big fish in Europe. And back in the Middle Ages, because their feeding action was they always had that big, you know, big burst. Yes. They, they named them after a pike that soldiers used. And uh, so a northern pike is basically acting like one of those old, you know, the guy in shining armor holding a pike. Yeah. Well, listen, Steve, um, take a little short break here. We are talking to Steve McComas, more famously known as the Lake Detective. I have so many questions, Steve, about uh, uh, fish you've seen, not seen, why you're looking at to, uh, and invasive species. We've got to talk about that. But we'll do that right after these words from our sponsors. Our good friends at Connecticut. You know how much the Shirk family loves Connecticut water. We have it in our home, and now we've added it to our cabin life. And, <laughs> oh, what a difference it makes. You know, for as long as I can remember, we've dealt with that cabin water, that stinky, foul well water. After a painless four-hour installation, we now have Connecticut soft water and also Connecticut's K5 drinking system. No more bottled water to try and make coffee in the morning. It's great drinking water right out of the K5 tap. Our laundry no longer smells funny, and Connecticut water cleaned up both our showers and the kitchen dishes. The world's most efficient, worry-free water system. Visit Connecticut.com to find a dealer near you and join the Connecticut family. Did you know that a propane gas furnace lifespan averages 20 years, while electric heat pumps only last about 14 years? And propane furnaces work in all temperatures while delivering warm and consistent heat in your home. Why buy two heating systems when propane furnace can do it all? Lasts longer, works better, and costs less. These things and more are being done today with propane, the right energy right now. Hewitt Docks, Lifts, and Pontoon Legs began in a small south-central Minnesota town with a mission to make dock install and removal easier by inventing the Rolla Dock. Well, now the company has evolved to provide everything you might need to improve your lake time. In addition to the classic Rolla Dock or the new Ultra Dock system, Hewitt offers all-terrain staircases, gangways, canopies, and lifts, along with any accessory you might need. Celebrate 50 years of business with us. Go to HewittRad.com to enter for a chance to win a free dock and monthly prizes. Hewitt Docks, lifts, and pontoon legs. Work hard, play harder. You deserve a Hewitt. 
All right, welcome back to another edition or section, I should say, of the Minnesota Bound Podcast. Ron Shera here with you again with a very special guest. They're all special, of course, but this guy is um, very dear to me because he spends his life, uh, in the summer anyway, underwater being a lake detective. That's his title. That's his job. Steve McComas, uh, welcome back to the show. And I, like I said, a lot of questions for you. Um, let's talk about, we're talking about the uh, muskie that, that bit you and how Northern Pike got his name. So when you're asked to do things with about fish by a community or uh, some of your clients, what, what does that usually mean? Generally, we'll look at existing information. The DNR has been so good with fish surveys over the years. First of all, we want to know what is existing out there. When was the last survey done? On some of these lakes, though, without a public access, the DNR doesn't get out very often. So it might, some of these fish surveys might be 20 years old. Yeah. So one of the things we'll do is we'll set trap nets, which are live, you know, live traps so we don't have to kill any fish. We will set those traps using the same gear that the DNR uses so we can make comparisons to our catch per unit effort and things like that to right. see what what is the shape of the fish community. Is it balanced? Is it unbalanced? So based on those data then we can make recommendations for either fish removal, fish stocking, uh, and things like that to enhance the, the fishery. When you say balance, does it mean like, hey, I got one northern pike here and 10 perch. Uh, if he eats too much, he's going to run out of... I mean, That's a good point. What, That's a good question. What's, what's balance mean? A balance, what we want to have is we want to have some piscivores. We want to have the fish eaters at the top of the food chain, and we don't have enough of them to keep the forage fish, the bluegills and perch and things under control. Mm-hmm. So we should always have enough game fish, piscivores, to keep and exert downward pressure and forage pressure on our bluegills perch so they don't get stunted. Mm-hmm. Bluegills are so prolific, if they don't have some predation pressure, they can become overabundant and then stunted. Then we have all these four-inch bluegills. But when we have enough piscivores in a lake... They can exert that pressure, and then we have a bluegill population with, with, a, with enough food so that we can support six, seven, eight-inch bluegills as well as that and maintain that piscivore population. Yes, and just to add to that, I think this has been a recent discovery by fish biologists, and that is for so many decades, it's human nature. We would go bluegill fishing, and the biggest ones would always come home to be yep, in the frying pan. Right. Uh, they have subsequently found that by us removing all the big bluegills, especially, I guess, the male bluegills, uh, we have sort of turned the rest of bluegills into uh, 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 what would be risque <laughs> bluegills. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, uh, they all started breeding much a younger age, and that's we ended up with all these stunted bluegills, whereas the male, big male, well, apparently controlled some of that. Do you, did you find that? that? Absolutely. Not only that, we, by removing all the big bluegills, which are sometimes faster growing than others, we're removing that genetic pool. And then what we're leaving behind are the small, are some of the smaller bluegills that genetically are predisposed to maybe not growing as fast or as big. So sometimes we can manipulate the fish community by our overfishing and over in our fishing pressure. In fact, a couple of years ago, they did a study. They had this 80-acre reservoir. They had stocked it with several thousand largemouth bass. They knew how many bass were in the lake. They let three fishermen out there for three or four days to fish as many bass as they could. 
And after three days, when they took their count, those fishermen had, those three fishermen, three days, had removed about 70% of the bass. Mm -hmm. So we can really have an impact. We're the top predator sometimes in these lakes. You're right. Exactly right. Um, Got to talk also now about invasive species. Big topic. Um, and obviously, um, you were hired to look for them, too. Right. Um, uh, of course, we have uh, the starry, starry wart. Yep, starry stonewort. Starry stonewort. Yeah, they're awful. I fished. I didn't know what it was. It was in a lake that didn't have it. One year and one or two years later, the bottom was covered with it. You yep. couldn't bring a jig through there. That's right. And I go, what the heck's hanging up here? I've been <laughs> fishing right. this all the time. And I didn't catch anything either. But anyway, uh, so um, in your opinion, I mean, um, what do you have, or do you have an opinion about what is the worst invasive species we have going right now? Well, that's a great question too. Here's, a, here's my thoughts. These invasive species, they're not necessarily bad for a lake, they're not necessarily good for a lake, but they will change a lake. Mm-hmm. So between zebra mussels and starry stonewort and Eurasian milfoil, and we have a few others out there as well, and common carp, for example, which is an invasive species, they will change the lake ecology. Sometimes our perception might be for the worse, but others might say, well, no, look, at that's actually better. So, But they will change the lake. Zebra mussels right now are a big game changer. For example, in Mille Lacs. We have zebra mussels, mm-hmm. and they're such efficient filter feeders as they take out the algae because that's what they eat, water clears up. Now, in Mille Lacs, when zebra mussels cleared up the water, walleyes who are sensitive, light-sensitive, they move out to deeper water. Well, the whole walleye population did, the big ones as well as the young ones. However, the forage fish, bluegills, perch, they said, we don't care if the water clears up. We're staying in the weed beds. Mm-hmm. Well, so did the smallmouth bass. So smallmouth bass have all this extra forage now that generally, or in the past, they were competing with the walleyes. Walleyes moved out. So now we have some of the best smallmouth bass fishing, maybe in the country in Mille Lacs. The walleyes are on deeper water. They don't have the forage that they used to have. So they're feeding on the smaller walleyes. They can take out, they have a huge impact on, the, on those five, those three, four, five inch walleyes. Sometimes you can decimate or really have an impact on that year class. Yeah, you know, uh, interesting you say that because there are other people that also, in addition, DNR managed, uh, unfortunately now, as you look back, they managed for big walleyes mm-hmm. and basically starved them to death. There were uh, so many of them. Yeah. Anyway. That um, happens too. So in Mille Lacs, now is that, have zero mussels been beneficial for the lake or have they been detrimental? If you're a walleye fisherman, they've probably been somewhat detrimental. However, if you're a bass fisherman, that's you've, you've really enhanced the fishery. So what zebra mussels have done in this case, the invasive species in this case, they've changed the lake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, do you think, uh, and I've heard bluegills and perch feed on uh, villagers or uh, zebra mussels. Yes. Have you witnessed any of that? Yes, I have, yeah. Especially perch? Perch, but even bluegills, I think, are even better. At that, and, and it's the, a pretty healthy food, is it not? Well, it is, but a lot of the fish don't know that because zebra mussels are so new to a lake, they don't recognize that as a food source. They're going to their 
more native snails and, and, and the other invertebrates that they've always used. But you're right. These zebra mussels, especially the young ones, and even the villagers, are, are a food source. And in their native habitat, zebra mussel native habitat, which is probably like in the Caspian Sea area, uh, they're not a big problem because the native fish over centuries have developed, you know, a real kind of hankering <laughs> and a right. liking for those zebra mussels. It's a big food source. So at some point, our native fish here will, will figure that out. And in fact, we're seeing some inkling of that right now. We'll see bluegills in stomachs of, uh, or we'll see zebra mussels in the stomachs of bluegills. And perch are doing, are doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, our omnivores and our benthivores will be figuring that out. That that's a potential food source. And suckers then, too, maybe. Yep, suckers. Even they go along, yep. suck them right up. That's right. Well, you don't have to answer this. this is a pet peeve of mine, but uh, we tend to we, I think our our Department of Natural Resources always sometimes looks for reasons why something didn't go right, and it's seldom that they're the problem. Uh, for example, they they blame a lot on zebra mussels. But uh, Lake Erie has had zebra mussels in it for half a century. And this past year, they had a record supply of walleyes. So you go, and, and of course, Lake Erie has really gotten clean thanks to zebra mussels. The Ohio River is not catching fire anymore. But the, the big fear that they would annihilate the, um, uh, the, the algae didn't happen. Right. Anyway, I don't know. I, I just think, uh, Lord knows, we don't need invasive species. But sometimes I think they're used as an excuse. Well, Mother Nature is pretty resilient out there. Zero mussels first come in, they just explode, and their numbers are so dense that they have a huge change in the lake. And we see some of these short-term changes. We see water clarity improving dramatically. We see weed growth improving. We see filamentous algae being generated on the bottom because all their fecal matter is deposited down there, the zebra mussel matter. And so that really spurs some of this filamentous algae growth as well. So for all of a sudden, we're going, oh my goodness, this is terrible. However, zebra mussels, if they're very efficient and are big, abundant in the lake, they'll filter out so much algae that they start dying back themselves. And so then their population actually will crash or at least uh, decline mm-hmm. over the years. And so Mother Nature will, will balance this out and we'll have, our, we'll have these cycles. Mm-hmm. What about uh, some experts have said this, the spiny water flea could be worse, have a worse impact on the fish ecology, the ecosystem in a lake than zebra mussels. Uh-huh. I don't. Uh, there's a jillion of them in Lake of the Woods, but I haven't heard of, know of any repercussions for that. Well, you know, they they can have an impact too. They can change things. That spine makes them not as edible as other zooplankton, so they can really take off and, and overpopulate. However, again, Mother Nature, uh, fish will learn how to feed on those things. What you do is you don't attack a, a spiny water flea from the front because of the spine, you get them from like the back. And so when, <laughs> when the fish figure that out, spiny water flea will be another zooplankton that is a food source as well. Also, spinies are pretty much relegated to more cooler water, so they won't be a big problem all over the whole state. 
there'll be kind of a niche species, but they can be a they can be a, a nuisance certainly on the old fishing line as well. Yeah, it's, that's where I've seen them they're attached to the fishing line. Uh, Steve, we're going to take a short break here in a bit, but um, watching you talk and folks can't see you like I can. Uh, I think you're a guy that always looks at a lake as like a cup of water is is not half empty, it's half full. Um, you sound very optimistic about some of the problems you see in a lake that uh, down the road, whatever the severity they are now, they may not be as severe down the road. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's a good assessment. I think that is what we're seeing as well. In fact, a lot of our lakes have improving water quality over the last couple of decades. Interesting. You know, we had some... Should be the other way around, wouldn't you? Well, you'd think with more development, more farming, everything else. However, these farmers have helped out quite a bit. And by doing some of their buffer strips and and things like that... No-till, uh, no-tills. No-tills in there. That's all in the mix. Our treatment plants have been greatly, you know, enhanced and improved. And the nutrients from those discharges have declined. We have phosphorus fertilizer ordinances that we have minimum phosphorus now in our fertilizer. All these things incrementally can help, and some of our lakes are actually better than they were 20, 30 years ago. Interesting. Well, you should know, Mr. Detective, <laughs> yeah, right? That's what I'm seeing. <laughs> <laughs> I would take this short break. I'll be back, and we'll resume our conversation with the Lake Detective. <laughs> the Minnesota Historical Society. A message for you. Come visit Historic Fort Snelling. Minnesota's first national historic landmark, a place where waters, people, and ideas have come together for thousands of years. Hear many stories told by many voices and learn more about how lives and history intersect in ways that are stirring, powerful, complex, and still relevant today. Whether revisiting your favorite parts of history or learning something new, it's waiting for you at Historic Fort Snelling. Learn more at mnhs.org slash Fort Snelling. Hi there, Ron Shera here for Star Bank. If you're putting your money into mega banks down the street, who knows where that money's being used? Bank locally. Keep your money local with a community bank that actually cares about you, your family, your business, and your goals. Check out the bank we use at Minnesota Bound. Try Minnesota's own Star Bank. You can find them online at starbank.net. When you call Star Bank, you actually hear a real living person answering the phone. StarBank has 10 convenient locations around Minnesota to serve you and all the mobile banking products that you need to manage your money. Check out all that StarBank has to offer at StarBank.net. Remember FDIC and Equal Housing Lender? It's time to plan your fall hunt in North Dakota. Get this, with an estimated 3.4 million breeding ducks, North Dakota's central region is prime habitat for hunting waterfowl. In fact, right now, the state's breeding duck index sits 38% above the long-term average. And the water's up, too. The spring water index is up 616% over 2021. That's a good thing. Now, when you consider that North Dakota has approximately 700,000 acres of private land open to public walk-in hunting, guess what? You've got an outdoor oasis. 
For the latest information about public hunting lands and private land open to sportsmen and women, visit North Dakota Game and Fish Department. Bag your limit this fall in North Dakota. Visit LegendaryND.com. Hey, welcome back again. I'm enjoying this conversation. Maybe we'll go to five or six points here. I don't know. Steve McComas is with me. Welcome back to the Minnesota Bound Podcast. Ron Sherry here with you, folks. And uh, Steve is also well-known as the Lake Detective. Um, So how many bodies of water do you visit uh, without giving business uh, away here? Well, (laughs) if we include stormwater ponds, we got a bunch. We're probably... Stormwater? Holy cow, you can't, you know, the metro area. Who cares about stormwater? It's the land of 10,000 stormwater ponds. We have three, 400 of these ponds per city in a lot of cases. What do they want to know about them? Well, one, the storm ponds are in place to help reduce the nutrients that go into another larger receiving water body, a bigger a lake. A public body of water. However, in all these neighborhoods, this is, their re- this is a nice natural resource. So why not enhance these storm ponds to make them even a better neighborhood resource? So they do a little canoeing, maybe. Whatever. It's canoeing, you fishing. viewing, fishing. However, what we're finding is in these storm ponds, without a lot of predators, we can have fathead minnows out there 100 to 200 pounds per acre. And those little fathead minnows act just like little miniature carp. They're down in the bottom feeding and disrupting the sediments and taking out plants and everything else. So there's a little wow. miniature lake in, uh, in a lot of these neighborhoods with uh, some potential problems. So we're, we're, we're visiting probably 40, 50 lakes a year. Hmm. That's interesting. Who knew? Who knew? So you're a, 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 storm, a sewer water detective as well. <laughs> that doesn't, that's quite, not as quite as romantic as a lake detective. We'll stay with lakes. Steve, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I want to get back to this invasive species. A question I forgot to ask you. I had it down here. Because um, you've seen uh, many uh, invasive species that we have in Minnesota. Um, uh, we tend to think that most of these are being spread by boats. And um, I certainly am not doubting that, but I every once in a while I hear about a lake where something got in there, and I go, I don't think there's a public boat access there. Um, how how did this stuff move around then? Exactly. Well, you never say never. Birds, turtles. I mean, turtles can move from one lake to the next if they have zebra mussels on their shells. Some people say there's that's a potential source. You can't say never. That mm-hmm. could be a potential uh, source. Mm-hmm. However, it's, a very, it's usually a very, very small percentage sure. of what is being introduced. Sure. It's mostly boats, even shore fishermen, even lakes without a public access. We have some shore fishermen with a bait bucket, and when they're done, they'll just throw the bait bucket, which I've done myself. Yeah, They'll throw that in the, in the pond because they don't want to take it home. So we can um, we have a number of ways that we can disperse invasive species. Mm-hmm. And I say we, I mean, yeah, boaters, um, others as well. Well, you could have a mallard duck. Maybe a feather gets attached to its uh, to uh, the, uh, the the plant gets a piece yes, of the plant gets exactly. attached to the feathers, flies yep. to another lake. That's right. That uh, they might yeah. ingest a zebra mussel or two, and uh, that might pass right through the digestive tract and end up in another lake as well. Yeah. Because a lot of these, a lot of these ponds, you know, especially uh, during duck hunting season, which have 
uh, no public access at all. All of a sudden, we we see milfoil and things like that in some of these re- really remote ponds and small lakes. Right. And so, yeah, birds can be a factor, but generally, very small percentage. Yeah. And so, it certainly doesn't mean we have to let, let down our guard with boaters. I get that. Although, sometimes I'm not convinced that having some college kid or a retired guy come out, walk around my boat, ask me a few questions where, where I've been, where I'm going. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. You know, that's a good point too. How yeah, it's a lot of that is public education and that, it is. that can be helpful, but it doesn't stop anything going yeah. in there. You know, out East they have, they have inspectors too, but they call them hosts. They call them lake host where mm-hmm. they're there to greet and pass on some information and at the same time they might do a little inspection and that might be uh, similar it's very similar to what we're doing here we call them inspectors and good for them and once in a while they find something right but there's thousands of boats and um it's almost unbelievable issue a problem yeah. it doesn't take yeah a very very small percent of a of a of the boating traffic is going to have some potential problems yeah so I guess it just leaves us with no remedy outside of keep doing that. I mean, I'm sure, as you mentioned, I'm sure um, some of these inspectors have stopped uh, plants from going in. I think it was just a story about a inspector saw uh, uh, that stony, yeah, starry stone or starry stone on the side of a boat and stopped it from going into Lake Superior. Right. Um, so that was a big win. That's right. A lot of times what we're doing is we're slowing the spread. We're probably not necessarily stopping the spread. Yeah, yeah. And even slowing it is, is somewhat beneficial, but we had to put it in perspective. I had suspect in, in a few decades from now, there's, gonna be a, there's a lot of new species out there. And we call them invasive, but really, they're not invasive in every lake either. Conditions have to be conducive to that growth for any species really to take off. Heck, we have native plants that can be invasive. Mm-hmm. I mean, water lilies sometimes they can take exactly. over a shallow exactly. bay. We have coontail, which is a native plant right. that in the right growing conditions, it is, it's worse than some of our non-native species. So yeah. I think invasive species versus the non-invasive species is a category that we should probably be concentrating on as well. Well, the curly leaf pondweed is, pondweed is not a native, but oh my Lord, is that, is that plant a pain in the butt? That's something. Yeah. That is something. That You're right. That is a non-native plant. It's been around for a good 100 years. It's probably in over 900 lakes in Minnesota. They stopped kind of counting. And the thing about curly leaf pondweed is that its stem density can be high enough that not only is it a problem for boating and navigation and recreation, but when stem densities get over about 200 stems per meter squared, it starts affecting fish habitat and fish movement. And some of this curly leaf under the right growing conditions... It can be six, seven hundred stems per meter squared, and that even then is an adverse impact on fish habitat. Well, it just as a fisherman, I, I, I start thinking. I don't think fish like uh, like curly leaf pondweed. I really don't. They like our native pondweed, yes. but curly leaf. It seems like they're never in it. You know, I don't know. No, that's a good point. That's a good observation. And I bet if you looked at that curly, if you're going to have stem densities over 150 stems per meter squared. That's kind of the cutoff for fish habitat. Mm. Good fish habitat is a lower density of stems, and our native our native pondweeds generally have a lower density, a lower stem density, 
and that's why it is so good for fish habitat, attached macroinvertebrates, it's a food source, and things like that. Well, what an interesting career you forged out, Steve. Uh, we're visiting with Steve McComas here. If you're just joining us, uh, I hope you go back to the start because he's Mr. Lake Detective. But um, So you've seen a lot of good and some bad, or I might say unfortunate or whatever. Um, are you optimistic about how Minnesota is treating its lakes and its water quality, et cetera, et cetera? I would say I am optimistic and from the standpoint i've seen over the last several decades better stewardship in our lakes more awareness of our lakes there's a, you know there's always a percent that uh don't follow all the um, maybe the guidelines being a kind of a uh you might call it a gentleman you know um out there on the lake and there is some of that but uh there's a for the most part there is a good outdoors ethic in minnesota and i as long as that stays strong I think we're in pretty good shape. Well, you know, bless you for that optimism. I, I share it as, as well. I've seen it too. Been, you know, when you get around long enough, you see a few <laughs> things. Um, uh, but anyway, now here's the last topic. I've saved it because Brandon doesn't know this about you, but I know this about you. Brandon's our producer here. He's sitting right over here. Brandon, I'm going to ask you to get in the ring with Mr. Lake Detective here in the next few weeks. Okay. <laughs> and it's going to be a legitimate boxing match, mm -hmm. so be prepared for that. Okay? I have a feeling I'm going to lose badly. Well, you look like you're in shape, but probably not that good a shape. Not, not that good a shape. <laughs> you're looking. <laughs> Mr. Lake Detective here is, how many damn boxing championships do you have? Well, I have won six world championships and then three international championships. For at, at a master's, the master's level, amateur. So it's not pro, but it's been fun. Holy God. So you still box? Yes, I'm still boxing. Competitively too? Not competitively. I had a little brain thingy here a few years ago. And so thingy, the, right? The brain surgeon said, you know what? Better not take any more shots to the old coconut. So uh -huh. I said, okay. So now I'm still boxing. It's all below the chin. And okay. I can still... It's not really competitive, but it's it's competitive between me and whoever I'm sparring. Yeah, I tell you. Well, I was surprised when I whipped you so easily that time. But. <laughs> yes, right. Well, you're too you're too fast. <laughs> we 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 did a Minnesota bound feature on the Lake Detective a few years ago, and uh, part of my intrigue with him was. Who would guess that this guy is also a championship boxer? So as part of the story, I got in the ring with him. We yes, bounced you around did. a little bit. Holy cow. <laughs> well, you started out, you know, light. And all of a sudden, Ron is shoot, shooting out these jabs. I'm going, holy cow. I'm ducking and moving and bobbing and weaving. And uh, I'm going, okay. I think the well, bell went ding, ding, ding. I go, I escaped. Uh, you're too kind. I think uh, that was a few years ago. I would, I'd be, I'd be lucky if I could even hop up and down now. But it was a few years ago. Steve uh, McComas, Mr. Lake Detective, uh, thanks for joining us. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much, Ron. A pleasure, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. All right. Well, that about does it for our Minnesota Bondcast. A big thank you again to Steve McComas, our Lake Detective. Great, uh, great guest. As he told the stories behind the stories, brought to you by Grain Belt Beer, 
Kinetico Water Treatment Systems. We'd also like to thank Minnesota Historical Society, Minnesota Propane Association, my favorite bank, Star Bank, Hewitt Docks, and North Dakota Tourism. North Dakota, hey, that's where my wife grew up. Good state. Until next week, don't forget to introduce a kid to the great outdoors. I'm Ron Shera. (laughs) 